Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. Join us, leave your field to flower. Join us, leave your cheese to sour. Join us, come and waste an hour. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Eliza Gardner, who is the author of the new book, Magic To Do, Pippin's fantastic fraught journey to Broadway and beyond. Eliza is a veteran theater and music journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Sun, the LA Times, the New Yorker, the Village Voice, Time Out, Rolling Stone, and Entertainment Weekly, to name only a few. In addition, she is the host of the podcast series Stage Door Sessions on Broadway Direct, and she's also reviewed music for VH1 and NPR. This is the first of two episodes in which Elisa joins me to discuss the now 50-year history of Pippin, including its unique origin story and, of course, its legendary backstage power struggle between a then 23-year-old wunderkind named Stephen Schwartz, fresh off the overwhelming success of Godspell, and the masterful Broadway showman and hitmaker Bob Fosse. Their fractious and difficult collaboration somehow produced one of the most popular, long-running, and influential musicals of all time. A show that most certainly has been a tremendous inspiration to now several generations of Broadway showmakers, and which led the way to the pop music-inflected musicals of today. we got magic to do, just for you. I hope that you will join us for what I guarantee will be a fascinating discussion. Here we go. 
So welcome, Elisa Gardner, to Broadway Nation. It is such a thrill to have you here today to talk about your new book, Magic To Do, all about the history of Pippin. Oh, thank you, David. It's thrilling to be here. I really appreciate your having me on. How did this book come about? What was the inspiration for doing the incredible amount of research that you obviously had to do to create this book? Well, um, part of the inspiration was COVID. (laughs) All the shows shut down, nothing was going on. I'd been thinking about doing a book for a while. My agent had been sort of pushing me very gently in that direction because I'd written chapters for books previously, but never a full book. We started kind of thinking about anniversaries coming up. I realized that Pippin, at that point, it was about two years ago. So uh, Pippin had a big anniversary coming in a couple of years. And it's a show I've always loved. It was kind of a gateway from the world of musical theater, which I was immersed in from the time I was a young child, to pop music for me, which became my obsession when I was a little bit older older and as a teenager. It's just a musical I've always loved. I didn't see the original production. I was alive. I was very, very tiny. So I did not get to see that wonderful Bob Fosse production. My parents did and loved it and had the eight-track cassette. I'm dating myself here in the car. That's how I became fixated on this score. You and so many others. I am lucky enough to have seen the original production. It was my very first trip to New York. I was in high school Uh Uh and was completely blown away by that show. I still can remember what it looked like, what it felt like. I saw the original cast, except Dorothy Stickney had already replaced Irene Ryan at that point. Right. But I think everybody else was in it. Was Jill Clayburgh still in it at that point? You know, I thought so. But then when I read your book, it made me question whether I'd seen her or Betty Buckley. My memory was I saw Jill Clayburgh, but Mm -hmm. you know, it was a long time ago. And then I've had the opportunity to direct Pippin several times. I did an early summer stock production right after it closed on Broadway and then was pleased to find my most recent production of Pippin mentioned in your book, which was production that was done at the Fifth Avenue Theater, I don't know, about 15 years ago, maybe at this Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. And that has a little scene set at that production in your book, which was fun to see. Yeah. With John Rubenstein's ex-wife was in that production. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Jane Lanier played Vestrada for us and she was fantastic. And John and their children came to see the show. I guess John got to see the new ending for the very first time Mm -hmm. that had Mm -hmm. been created post-Broadway and had some strong reaction to it, which was interesting to see. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess that different people had different reactions to the new ending. The Theo ending uh, is what it was called, started by Mitch Sebastian across the pond. But Stephen Schwartz was very happy with it. He told me that Bob Fosse, he believes, would have been happy with it as well. Yeah, he came out to work with us on that because I think we were one of the first theaters to institute that ending. He said the same thing then. He thought Bob Mm would have it would have eliminated at least one point of conflict between them. Oh, (laughs) God. Yeah, that was sort of the ultimate point of conflict from what I gathered. I mean, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, the ending, their disagreement over it. So let's work our way there. You tell the entire story of the creation of Pippin from the very, very beginning. And what was that beginning? Where did this all start? It was at Carnegie Tech, which became Carnegie Mellon, which is where uh, Stephen Schwartz was an undergrad. There was a sort of student-led drama organization called Scotch and Soda, and he became involved with it very early on. I believe as a freshman, he started writing for them and directing. He co-wrote wrote this production of Pippin. Initially, it was called Pippin Pippin, and it was conceived by another student there. And I'm completely blanking on his name right now, but it was literally a matter of Stephen overhearing him playing this wonderful music and saying, hmm, what's that? And going in and, and saying, you know, I think you should make this musical and I think that I should make it with you. Of course, the origin of the musical, the basis was to do it about Charlemagne's eldest son, who was not legitimate, although I spoke to a Princeton medieval history professor 
professor and what was legitimate and what wasn't legitimate back then. There's a little bit of a question about that. But in any case, they took a lot of license with the show. You know, Pippin is not a hunchback as he supposedly was, although there's question about that as well. His story is just completely an invented story, pretty much. And then it became a different story. The story evolved again when Stephen graduated from college and decided to take the show independently because the co-creator at that point did not want to pursue it any further. And this is the 1960s we're talking about. Yes, the late 60s. Yeah, like 1968. And then by the time Stephen started pursuing it as an alumnus, (laughs) at that point, it was maybe around 1970 that he was working on it. 69, 70. First, he got a job as an A&R man at a record company. But the whole time he had this show in his head and he had an agent. Leonard Bernstein's sister was his agent, Shirley Bernstein. And he worked with Leonard Bernstein on a show called Mass and also had Godspell. There was Godspell and there was Mass and there was Pippin. That was the chronology. Stephen is still in his early 20s when this is happening. And he has an off-Broadway success with Godspell while he's still working on Pippin, while it's sort of germinating. He comes to New York with Pippin as his project. Pippin is the show that he has in his pocket, I guess. He has songs that he's written for. He has an idea for a show. But he comes to New York with the idea that that's what he's going to do. And along the way, Godspell happens. That's right. I should point out, you, you know this as well, that Pippin was completely original. It was completely distinct from Pippin Pippin. Because his co-creator did not decide to pursue it with him, Stephen decided to write an entirely new score. He wanted an entirely new book, which he got with Roger Herson eventually. And how did he find Roger Herson? Because they come from very different generations and different worlds. How did that match come together? He was looking at several different collaborators, and I think Shirley Bernstein might have been in some way connected. Stephen had been interested in experimental theater, and Mm -hmm. Roger had a sort of sensibility that he liked. Roger had success on television with anthology series. And so they met and it was a good match, even though Stephen was quite a bit younger. Roger was about Fosse's age. They were both in their 40s. Roger Herson was not a flower child. He was not a member of Stephen Schwartz's generation. Although politically and, and many other aspects, they seem to share a lot of sensibilities. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, politically and even creatively in many ways, Bob Fosse and Stephen Schwartz shared a lot. They both were hugely appreciative of the contributions that Black artists had made to pop culture in the United States and dance and music. They were both big Fellini fans. They were both vehemently opposed to the Vietnam War. But somehow... All that notwithstanding, the personalities did not mesh. So so let's take another step toward that. How does Bob Fosse come into the picture? In the meantime, Stephen Schwartz has become one of the most successful creators of musical theater in the world with the success of Godspell. Yeah, even though he had not had a Broadway show yet. But yeah, he was a rising star. Absolutely. A prodigy, really. Which I assume then brought a lot of attention to him. What do you want to do next, Stephen? And what he wanted to do next was Pippin. And that puts him now in a league where he can find the top producers, the top directors. It puts him in a league with Bob Fosse at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, it certainly puts him in a position at least where, you know, Bob Fosse could look at this and listen to it and say, oh, maybe I could collaborate with this up and coming young artist. And I believe Stuart Ostro, the producer of Pippin, this was back in the dark ages when they actually 
had one main producer <laughs> per show. And uh, Stuart Ostro had known Bob Fosse socially. They sort of overlap here and there in terms of their work. I know that Stuart Ostro did a lot of work with Frank Lesser. They knew each other. And the way that Stuart Ostro told this to me was that basically Bob did not like the Bob Fosse. I can't call him Bob because I, I, <laughs> I don't know the guy. You know, he died years and years ago. Never met him. But according to Stuart Ostro, Bob Fosse's reaction to the show was it's a piece of S word. Yeah. <laughs> it's a podcast. You can say whatever you yeah, like or yeah, not. Yeah. Right. Well, in case my parents are listening. And that's actually something where John Rubenstein told me as well, that that's the way he referred to the book. Now, understand this is the book. From what I understand, the irony is that Bob Fosse quite liked the score of Pippin, even though he and Roger Hurston got along quite well, because Roger Hurston, from what I understand from speaking to people, was kind of like going along to get along. You know, he realized this was a big Broadway show. He'd had one pretty well-received musical before, but this was something on a new scale for him, and he did not want to mess it up. Whereas Stephen, he was younger. It was just as big a break for him. But he's also on the top of the world at the moment as well. That's right. That's right. He's the young rising creative star of the moment in musical theater. Which is a dangerous combination to be 23 years old and Mm -hmm. the new big thing. Yeah. And just fresh off of working with Leonard Bernstein, getting a lot of praise for an off-Broadway show that scored a top 10 hit. I think that was the first time that it happened since Some Enchanted Evening. It was definitely a good time to be Stephen Schwartz. Day by day. Ironically, the part of the show Fosse falls in love with or is most attracted to is the score and yes. agrees to do it, presumably because of the score, assuming they'll, yeah. they'll fix the book along the way. He didn't have any problems with the score. That's something that Stephen Schwartz told me that, you know, they didn't argue over the score, that whenever he told Stephen, you know, maybe we need something else musically here or went in another direction with the song musically, that that was not an issue. That was never the kind of thing that they thought about. It was really the book that he and Stephen disagreed about and the concept to a certain extent. The concept. I mean, Stephen spoke a lot about how he thought that there was a crassness, a crudeness to some of the humor that Bob Fosse wanted to bring to it, that there was a cynicism. He didn't trust the audience that they would make an emotional connection with these characters. And with Pippin in particular, because when the musical was conceived, the leading player was not nearly as big a character as he became once Ben Vereen was cast, in part because of Ben Vereen's just extraordinary talent, but also because of Bob Fosse's vision for the show. He very much wanted this sort of, I guess today you would call him a frenemy, you know, (laughs) not really an antagonist as much as a foil. Ben Vereen described him as sort of the devil posed on his shoulder, but not 
in a really awful demonic sense, but in a little bit more of a playful sense. Until the end, of course. Until the end, right. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, yeah. I guess maybe in the leading player's mind, suicide could be playful, but yeah, no, it's dark stuff in there. But Stephen was very keen on making the point that he and Roger Hurston wanted it dark. They liked the darkness. It wasn't the darkness that he objected to. It was more the cynicism. What Stephen Schwartz said about Pippin after rereading it again when we were doing interviews is that he realized the show needed to be rescued by Bob Fosse to succeed on Broadway, but it needed to be rescued from Bob Fosse to have a long afterlife. And he said that he realized the main issue was the undercutting of the characters, especially Pippin, and the undercutting of emotion and keeping an aesthetic distance from the audience. So the idea was the audience would really enjoy this and be titillated by it and be thrilled by it. But you know, it was more important to Stephen Schwartz, or I should say as important to Stephen Schwartz, that the audience members care about these characters and about Pippin's journey. And Fosse was very concerned about being seen as being sentimental. Yes, in any way. This was hot on the heels of the movie Sweet Charity, which had been a substantial hit, but had not done as well. Certainly, the critics were very mixed on it, and nothing stuck in Bob Fosse's craw more at that point in his career anyway than being accused of sentimentality. He saw, you know, in this leading player figure, I'm sure. You know, I didn't know Bob Fosse, but it's not hard to imagine that he saw in this showman who is constantly flirting with danger, who is just incredibly seductive, who can be dangerous to himself and to others. I'm sure that sort of resonated with Bob Fosse personally on some level. It's not hard to see the leading player as Bob Fosse and Pippin as Stephen Schwartz. That's correct. And a lot of people have said that, but I want to be clear that people I interviewed for the book also thought that that was simplistic. Chet Walker, who we just lost, who was a longtime collaborator of Bob Fosse, said that he would always have this gleam in his eyes, Bob Fosse, like a boyish gleam in his eyes. And I think John Rubenstein compared little Pippin to little Bobby. There was an eagerness, there was a restlessness, and there was a desire for perfection, of course, in Bob Fosse. He wanted to be extraordinary, as Pippin did, and Bob Fosse certainly was. And he went to all kinds of lengths to make that happen. So in that reading, Bob Fosse is both the leading player and Pippin. I mean, there are are elements of both. I don't know, with Stephen Schwartz, he, by his own admission, was very idealistic, very green at that point. I would be hard-pressed to sort of see the leading player as much in Stephen Schwartz, to be honest with you. But he certainly wasn't just Pippin. Well, and like any writer, you have to get into the heads of all the characters in order to write them successfully. And he did very well. That's correct, yeah. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back. Blood is red as sunset. Blood is warmer than wine. It's warmer than wine. The taste of salty summer brine. Steel. Steel. 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com slash BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's backtrack a minute. You, in your research, got to read all the versions of this show, it seems like, from your book. Well, not the whole college version. I got to listen to the college cast recording. Stephen gave me a few songs, and then a colleague of mine had a bootleg or something <laughs> that he slipped <laughs> to me. I don't even know if you'd call it a bootleg. It was a CD with all the songs on them. So I got to really hear how different they were. I mean, some of the intention was the same. Texturally, it was just very, very different. And the tone was different. The main thing is that the tone was different. The songs were not nearly as pop as they would later become, which is interesting because they're in college at the time. You'd think they'd be writing the most pop version of it, but right, right. But they're actually more influenced by traditional musical theater as they're writing it, it sounds well, like. Yeah, I think at that point, Stephen was already heavily influenced by pop music and also by musical theater, certainly as structurally. He was very well aware, very well schooled. So his partner in college is Ron Strauss. And they are co-writing the music or trading off on songs. Were they writing the songs together or some songs written by Ron and some songs written by Stephen? I believe the songs were written separately. There was a division of labor. I think that's the term that Stephen used because Ron Strauss had already been working on songs before Stephen got involved. His songs tended to be more ballad-like, whereas Stephen, I think he said they were more like musical theater 101 songs. There'd be a big dance number or a choral number. 
number to kind of, you know, propel the story along. He very much had that musical theater structure in his mind. And in terms of the book, which they collaborated on, that was a little more of a melodrama. They wanted it to be very witty, very sharp. The Lion in Winter was a very, very popular play at that time. And that was a source of inspiration for them. They wanted to replicate that kind of snappy dialogue that that show has. Yeah, they wanted a combination of the snappy dialogue and the sort of family drama. And it was not really about one young man's personal journey. The focus was not as much on Pippin. Pippin was the central character, but it was more about the family drama, the family dynamics. And there was not a leading player at that point. That was not an issue, but it was a very, very different show. So let's talk about that next draft. After he teams up with Roger O'Herson and the script, presumably, that was given to Bob Fosse, you got to see that. Right. The fourth wall was sort of broken a little bit or certainly pushed in that Stephen had been very inspired by The Seventh Seal, the Ingmar Bergman film. He's a huge Bergman fan, as am I. Interestingly, death is very prominent in that work as well. And in this case, he had a caravan of players come on and Pippin was sort of introduced in that way. And then they reappeared at the end. And that iteration went through several revisions in itself, came and went, or characters that had been retained were eventually left aside. But the idea of a troupe of traveling players is there from that stage. Absolutely. It's sort of a framed work in the sense that there's an old man leading the caravan. The old man is the character that evolved into the leading player, because at first the old man appeared at the beginning and the end. And certainly if he appeared in the middle, he was not the driving force that Ben Vereen's character would become. So this old man framing device gets expanded into the character of the leading player. That's correct, yeah. Partly that happens during the casting process, doesn't it? It does, it does, because they discover Ben Vereen, and I think Bob Fosse had always wanted a dancer for the role of the old man. But, you know, to find an older actor who dances with that much dynamism might have been challenging. But it was more, I suspect, just the combination of talent that Ben Vereen had as a singer, as a dancer, the charisma... They knew this was someone who could really carry a show. And Ben Vereen had worked for Fosse prior to this. Yes, he had. Ben Vereen had first come to the attention of Bob Fosse when he auditioned for a tour of Sweet Charity and eventually appeared in the film as well. So Fosse was quite familiar with him. And anybody who'd been really following musical theater at that point, Ben Vereen was on their radar. He'd just been Judas and Jesus Christ Superstar. He wasn't the type necessarily. It was supposed to have been an older character and a smaller character character. Then he came along and they just fell in love with him, and understandably so. And of course, when Ben Vereen's in the room, you're going to give him more to do. That's correct. Yes. If you're not crazy or stupid. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Ben Vereen spoke about at one point being at a reading and looking at the script and thinking, oh my gosh, I have nothing to do here. And Fosse's just sort of looking at him and laughing and saying, don't worry, we're going to fix this. <laughs> you're going to be very happy with your part. In your book, you talk about this casting process and at the same time the work on the show is happening between Fosse and the writers. They're developing the show at the same time they're casting it. And it's always interesting to read who was considered for parts. I love that in any of these kinds of books where you get your hands on the casting sheets or the callback sheets and you get to see who was considered to play these roles, which is always yeah. fun. Yeah, there were a number of people who either were at that point rising actors or were established actors even, or who would become established 
actors. John Travolta auditioned and Stephen Schwartz loved him, but said, not this show, but he really encouraged him to pursue a career. And obviously he was on to something there, but lots of big familiar names. As Eliza tells us in her book, other actors that were auditioned or at least considered for the title role included John Denver, Arlo Guthrie, Peter Noon, Davy Jones, Mickey Dolenz, David Cassidy, Richard Gere, Christopher Walken, and Michael Crawford. And of course, the cast that they came up with created several major stars. Jill Clayburgh became a big movie star out of that. That's right. John Rubenstein would go on to a lot of acclaim, and these were really early first jobs for the two of them. Yeah, yeah, and certainly propelled Ben Vereen even further, and uh, Anne Ranking as well. And the big established star, in a way, or at least the star of the moment, was Irene Ryan, who was such an incredible sort of casting coup. When you are as old as I, my dear, and I hope that you never are, you will woefully wonder why, my dear, through your cataracts and catarrh, you could squander away or sequester a drop of a precious year. For when your best days are yester, the rest are twice as dear. Yeah, from the Beverly Hillbillies. You're a little too young, but uh, anybody who remembers that, that was the biggest show on television. Yeah, in fact, her character was named Granny, is that right? Granny Clampett, yeah. Granny Clampett, because Stephen Schwartz was afraid that because her big song, Just No Time At All, there's a lyric, A Man Who Calls Me Granny. And he was afraid that that would seem like he was making a very obvious reference. Give me a man who is handsome and strong. Someone who's stalwart and steady Give me a night that's romantic and long And give me a month to get ready Now I could waylay some aging away And persuade him to play in some cranny But it's hard to believe I'm being led astray By a man who calls me Granny He had written that lyric prior to her that's being cast and then he thought people would think he just put it in to play on her TV show. That's right. Yeah. And then, of course, they did think that, but it turned out to be a positive in a way. Oh, they didn't care. She got a standing yeah. ovation every night, and she stuck around for it. Now, sage is sweet, the age is sweet, good deeds and good work earn you laurels. one song in the show, as mm -hmm. people who know the show know, and she completely stopped the show cold. Now, I have yeah. to say that when I saw the show, Dorothy Stickney did the same thing. So part mm -hmm. of it is just a terrific performer in that number in that show. Yeah. But I love that anecdote you talk about. She was so happy to be back on Broadway. And of course, the way the number staged, they take her off at the end. She's not on stage when the audience applauds. That's right. But she would not want to go to her dress 
dressing room. Nope. She was like, I'm staying right here. <laughs> and the, a couple of original cast members told me about that. Pamela Sousa was one. And why didn't she want to go to her dressing room? Because she wanted to hear the applause. She wanted to hear every bit of that applause. She did not want to miss a single second of it, a single millisecond of it. People just thought she was adorable. The whole cast who were at that point in their 20s and 30s, most of them, a couple in their 40s, but mostly very young, got a real kick out of it. a chance to speak to all of the surviving members of the cast? Most of the surviving cast members. I did not speak to the boy who played Theo. I tried desperately to find him, but he has changed his name. <laughs> and I actually found this out about a month after the book was at the printer. One of the cast members like, I found him, I found him. I think he sort of moved in a very different direction with his life. And the other person I did not speak with was Walter Willison, which was entirely my fault because he's still very much around and he was Pippin's standby and could have told me I'm sure a few stories of his own but we have to sell enough copies of this book that there will be a second edition and his stories will be in that. In fact he is producing and directing a sort of reunion at 54 Below. For the 50th anniversary? It's like a little belated anniversary. It's going to be early next year I think in February. Like all the anniversaries that happened during COVID. That's right. Now they're happening. They're permanently pushed. They're on a different timeline now. What was interesting to me is that so many of the cast members look back on this as an incredibly important, meaningful, almost magical time in their lives. That company was very tight. By Broadway standards, it was a relatively small cast for the time. Now it would be a big cast. But mm -hmm. in those days, mm -hmm. it was a smaller group of people. And it seems like it was a very intense experience. It was. And I mean, you have to remember that these actors were essentially playing members of a cult. Fosse called the trio, the big trio that does the number in the middle of glory, the Manson Trio. something that was very much in his mind. It was on everybody's mind at that time. It was only a couple of years after the murders had happened. And Vietnam was lurking in the background. There was a lot of stuff going on in the bigger culture. Music was changing, theater was changing. And in terms of music changing, a chapter I also found very interesting was the show's relationship to Motown. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that the album came out on Motown Records. I mentioned that to my, I teach a history class at the University of Washington mm -hmm. about the history of the Broadway musical. And I mentioned that it was the first and I think only cast album to ever come out on Motown Records. And then I had to explain what Motown Records was. Because oh, no. <laughs> How is that possible? God, That's it's awful. Twenty-year-olds today do. They have the I, internet. How can they not know Motown? Well, I could have assigned them to go figure it out, but they asked me, "What's the significance of Motown?" So tell us, how did Barry Gordy come into the picture? How did that match get made? Stephen Schwartz fell in love with Motown music 
early on because it was groovy. It was just beautiful, impeccably produced, melodic, rhythmic, soaring pop music that appealed to white and black fans that cut across racial divides. Barry Gordy was a leading black entrepreneur. So in addition to having black artists, including black writers and producers, you had this black businessman. And that was a huge thing at the time. And like George Gershwin, like Leonard Bernstein before him, Stephen Schwartz was really heavily influenced by Black music, as American music is at large. He was very much a fan of Dozier Holland, the great producer-songwriting team behind many of the Motown hits. You can hear it in the music for Godspell. You can even hear, I think, more of a soulfulness, more of a grooviness in his musical scores than you can in a lot of rock and influence musical scores, which are more sort of arena rock informed, I would argue, in some cases, more bombastic, (laughs) less graceful. Maybe that's the word I want. There's a grace and a theatricality and a muscle that Motown's music had that really made it I think a good fit. And it turned out that there was a backers audition and one of Barry Gordy's executive assistants or creative assistants, somebody who worked very closely with him, Suzanne DePass, who was very young herself at the time, about Stephen Schwartz's age, went to listen, was just completely knocked out by the score and told Barry Gordy about this. And eventually Barry Gordy went and listened to the music himself, apparently loved it. Didn't Stephen Schwartz perform it for Barry Gordy at some point? He did. That's correct. Once Barry Gordy expressed interest in meeting was set up. It was in a hotel, I believe, in Beverly Hills. And he just sat at a piano, played the music for Barry Gordy, and Barry Gordy said, I'm in, and wound up investing. I think he was the single biggest investor in the show. And Motown Records also got to release the original cast album. That was their first original cast album. Barry Gordy, making great use of this investment that he made, brought Pippin into the entire Motown organization. That's right, and brought along some of its biggest names for the ride. You've got the Jackson Five, you've got a young Michael Jackson, and you've got the Supremes shortly after Diana Ross left the group performing songs from the show on their own. And the album was produced more like a pop album than yes. a show album. Yes, they brought in ringers, as you call session singers, to kind of buff up the sound because another big point of contention between Stephen Schwartz and Bob Fosse was that Stephen had wanted more really strong voices in the show where Bob Fosse wanted the dancers. He cared much less about the singers. So when it came time to record the album, Stephen and Phil Ramone hired singers to kind of come into the studio and really beef up the sound. One of the cast members I spoke with remembers hearing the album and listening with another cast member and thinking, huh, is that us? Wow, we sound really amazing. And then realizing, all right, well, maybe there's a little bit of extra help. Maybe there's some special sauce added there. Elisa and I will be back next week with even more of the -the behind-the-scenes story of Pippin, especially how that simmering conflict between Stephen Schwartz and Bob Fosse finally came to a head during the rehearsals and out-of-town tryout as Pippin headed for its opening on Broadway. (laughs) 
Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Powell's Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. It's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.